Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Roger Hershey, a national traveling speaker and campus ministry consultant with Crew. Roger has ministered to university students for 50 years now, sharing truths and wisdom that has changed the lives of thousands of students. I know this firsthand because I was one, now four decades ago, who had the privilege of being discipled by Roger while I was a student at Miami University. So I'm thrilled to have Roger on the show and to have him share some of his wisdom with us. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stan. Good to be, good to be with you. Believe it or not, it was 40 years ago this month that we first met. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. Yeah. I was a freshman at Miami University, and you were doing campus ministry there at the time. And uh, during those student years, you mentored me and uh, left an a incredibly deep and transforming mark in my life. And the, the mark's been so deep and uh, indelible that the work I've been doing these last four decades, including what I do now with Global Scholars, is a direct influence of, of your, your ministry in my life. So it's just a great honor and a privilege well, to have you on the show and to have you share your heart with our listeners. Great. I know a lot of your heartbeat is summarized in a book you wrote that came out in 2011 called The Finishers. Mm-hmm. And as I read through it, I, I remembered many times we discussed those themes uh, that you put in this book. And I know it's what's motivated you to continue in campus ministry now for, what, over 50 years. And so I'd love to hear first what led you to, uh, to write this book and some of the things that, that, that shaped you in such a way that these became deep convictions. Okay, sure. Well, what led to the book was... Uh... I had on numerous occasions, people say to me, uh, Hirsch, which is how I'm referred to by most people, uh, said, Hirsch, you need to take your best teachings and uh, and get them in a book. Because, you know, in the ministry I've had, beside all of my years on campus directly with students, 25, 30 of them, um, I then began to travel and speak, which I do now uh, quite a bit around the country. So people said, you got to put your best teachings in a book. I said, well, I don't think I'll ever get that done. I don't think I'm a writer. And then the uh, director of our crew ministry at Pitt, sitting down with him one day, said, Hirsch, I would love to help get your best teachings in a book. I'll be a ghostwriter for you, with you. And together, as we talked, we realized, well, what would be the theme of the book under which we have all the different chapters? And we realized the theme that had captured both of our hearts at the time was that in this generation, we are at a place uh, the church has never been in the 2,000 years of its existence. And that is, we're at a place where this generation could literally finish the mission. Now, of course, every generation had that mandate. What, 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 what mission? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> the mission to, uh, to take the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. Mm-hmm. anticipating the day that we are standing before the Lord around the throne with people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Mm-hmm. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, 20, expressed also in Mark, preach the gospel to all creation. I was captured by that in college, Stan, as you know, from our time together. Yeah. In my own life, I was captured by, wow, I have been called by the God of the universe to be a part of his mission. That the day I gave my life to Christ, I 
began to be on mission with him. Hmm. So say more about those early years for you and how this became such a, such a conviction. Okay. Yes. Well, I, I went to Penn State University. Go Nittany Lions. And uh, <laughs> while there during my freshman year, though I had come to Christ in high school through another ministry, I had only grown in a small measure, really. Came to Christ and a guy named Larry began to disciple me as a junior when I was a freshman. And through Larry's discipleship, getting me into the scripture, starting me help me understand the reasons for the reasonableness of my faith. Mm. Began to read uh, oh so many books <laughs> mm-hmm. that developed my convictions about the credibility of the faith, about what it meant to walk in the spirit, how to communicate the gospel with non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the books that was particularly influ- influential, Stan, as you know, because we went through it, uh, The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Sure. The thesis of that book is how Jesus took the 12, discipled them. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, because of what Jesus did with those first 12 men. Mm-hmm. I was captured by that, was thoroughly involved with the crew the next three and a half years, started a fraternity ministry at Penn State, began to disciple men. And as I saw men come to Christ and grow and reach other men, I was captured by the vision that we could reach the world, we, the church, could reach the world by investing our lives in other people. Mm. So that's where it all began for me. Then when I came on staff with crew and began to do basic personal ministry, evangelism, discipleship, was exposed to people like Ralph Winter from the U.S. Center for World Missions. Mm and so many other missiologists, and became aware of the reality that we live in a generation uh, that could potentially finish this mission of getting the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. So my, as I began to teach and speak, many of my messages uh, revolved around that theme, mm. that you've been called by God, chosen, set apart, uh, equipped, gifted, to help be a part of finishing the mission. And the beautiful thing is, you know, Stan, I spent 17 years at Miami of Ohio mm-hmm. in campus ministry, spent 11 years at Penn State, my alma mater. But during those 17 years at Miami, so, so many men and women raised up from the campus to go into the world in all different ways of ministry uh, with crew, with other mission agencies, pastors, youth pastors, apologists, philosophers, Several men who are now philosophy professors um, on campuses, men like yourself, who God raised up with a specific, unique calling as a part of how to finish the mission, in your case, with global scholars, helping mobilize professors to go all over the world and, and connect with students and communicate the gospel in their particular discipline. So anyway, I just saw and was a part of the privilege of watching God raise up men and women to go all over the world from little Miami of Ohio which most people think is in Florida, <laughs> in all ways of ministry uh, around the world and are still in ministry. Some who've been in other parts of the world for 30 some years. I just mm-hmm. recently met with a, a former disciple who helped plant a church in the largest, one of the largest cities in East Asia mm-hmm. with a group of other businessmen. He was there as a businessman living out his, his calling through the, in the marketplace and planted a church that's grown to 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. And it began for him, as so many others, by what he was equipped and trained in in college that prepared him for a lifetime of living for Christ uh, Mm -hmm. around the world. And that became my passion. So back to your question, why write this book? Mm -hmm. 
I feel at this point in my life, I turned 70 last September, which no one can believe because I'm still playing a mean game of racquetball, still playing <laughs> volleyball stand. <laughs> Good for you. But as I speak to an audience of students, whether it's 100 at a fall retreat or 1,000 at a spring break trip, I'm looking at a, a group of men and women and saying to them, you can be a part of the greatest cause in human history. You can give your life to the greatest mission that's ever been given. If you will, if you will surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, yield your rights and reject the entitlement of this culture and say, Lord, how do you want to use me to fit into your grand plan to take the gospel to the whole world? And so I wrote the book to challenge this generation to want to be a part of finishing the mission. In the very back of the book, I have a, a, a section where they can sign a commitment to say, I want to be a finisher. Hmm. Meaning whether that is through being a doctor, through a lawyer, professor, uh, a missionary, a pastor, a campus worker, whatever their set of spiritual gifts and strengths are to live out my calling to focus on, can we finish the mission in this generation? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what led, <laughs> that's a long answer, but that's what led me to write this book. Yes. That's great. So what's been the response to it? Has it been pretty positive? Have you received any pushback? A very little pushback. I am sure there's many who brought the book and it's still sitting on their shelf. Okay. <laughs> they haven't read it. But I have received so many emails, notes. Uh, I encounter students in conferences that say, well, I read your book and God used that to help confirm my calling in the direction I should go. Many, many mm. that have read it and said, yeah, the Lord used this to help me finally say, yes, I'm moving in this direction. Mm. So that's been very encouraging. Uh, I think it's sold around, uh, I've gone to 15, 20,000. Great. So yeah, students have responded to it. I think because the messages I'm giving, the one stand I'll, I'll mention that they most respond to is a message on entitlement and yielding your rights. As you know, this generation knows all about what it is to be entitled. And so when I challenge them from Philippians 2, that we died with Christ on the cross when we put our faith in him. And he was one who, as it says in Philippians 2, laid aside his rights all the rights he was entitled to as God. And I'm challenging students to say, you know what? You died with Christ on the cross. And therefore you are also called to lay aside your rights, whether that be to make however much money I think I deserve or prestige or status or comfort or convenience, but to lay aside my rights and say, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere and do anything you would have me do to help finish the mission. I try to make the distinction between rights and privileges. Mm, that's good. Now, whatever privileges you want to return to me, I will be grateful. And in doing so, one of the privileges, and there are many, but one of them is the privilege of sensing I am using the gifts God's giving me to fit into the calling he has for me, which is unique. And there is a fulfillment and a pleasure when I am living out my calling according to how he's wired me. Mm -hmm. That is deeply fulfilling. Mm -hmm. and motivating and gets me out of bed every day. Oh, that's so helpful. Well, one of the uh, ideas you talk about in the book that was very influential in my thinking when I first read it with you 
was an idea that comes initially from David Bryant's book, In the Gap. It's this idea of getting out of your pea-sized Christianity, and I think it relates to what you're saying. Could you say more about that and how that relates and some of the implications of that for for students? Yeah, David Bryant's book was called In the Gap, uh, highly influential in the early 80s, Dan, when we read it Mm -hmm. during that time. And his pea-sized Christianity, he says, uh, so often... uh, our Christianity's pea-sized means it's small. It's I am a, a cultural Christian. I am a comfort Christian. I am a career Christian. Uh, he has a whole bunch of C's. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the idea is, no, I'm called to be a world Christian. You know, often sometimes it's, it's said that, well, isn't the Christian life just about walking with Jesus? And I say, yes. But the question is, where is Jesus walking? Mm. If I'm going to walk with Jesus, I'm walking with him wherever he's going. Well, where is he going? He wants to go to every corner of the planet. He wants to go to every people group on my campus. So to walk with Jesus means I don't have this little pea-sized Christian idea that it's about my comfort, about my culture, about church, my pea-sized church Christianity. I'll settle down in a nice church. I'll hear good teaching, get good worship, and I'll be a happy little Christian. But rather, I'm called to be a world Christian, that everything I do, the books I read, how I spend my money, uh, the size of the the house I buy is related to how does my life relate to helping reach the whole world for Christ, so that the world is the context for my life. It affects all my decisions, Mm -hmm. yea, even who I marry and how I raise my kids. And yes, do I want my kids to play good sports? Sure. (laughs) But is that my ultimate aim for their life, that I can vicariously live through your soccer game? No. Right. Uh, as I raised my four kids, my greatest passion was I want you guys to love Jesus and follow him wherever he leads you to go. Whether you become a great athlete or not is not your highest calling, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then that circles back to the student's or any of our spiritual growth, and that if we're doing that, it allows us, as you said, to to flourish in, in who God's made us to be. Yes. That makes, yes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, you, you've, you've already mentioned, and in the book, talk a lot about how this time in college, or, or at least the young adult years, whether someone's in college or not, but in the context you work, it's, it's with students, college students. You make the point that God often uses young adults often college students to begin spiritual revivals and renewals. Why is that? Well, it seems like uh, for a college student, they're at that point in life where they are free. (laughs) They have the availability to go anywhere and do anything. They also haven't become set in their ways yet, (laughs) locked into a certain theological system or a certain way we quote do church Uh, Their minds are open to, Lord, what are you doing here in my campus? What are you doing around the world? How can I fit into it? They're locked into a house and a mortgage and kids yet. So there's a lot of freedom to experiment and and try something, go somewhere, even for a year, to take a year to go on a mission trip to get experience. And so I think college students, with that kind of freedom, I know as I've discipled students, even the contrast discipling students versus the men I'm discipling in my church, the students have more freedom right now. Mm-hmm. I can meet with them in the middle of the day on campus and we can share our faith together. We can get into the word together. We can read a book together. So I think it's that freedom at this point in their life. 
and openness and perhaps teachability because they're still learning. They're still in college. They're hopefully still formulating the worldview. And hopefully it's a biblically informed worldview. And they're still in the process of evaluating all that and thinking that through, which is why I am motivated to work with students. Well, I certainly have experienced that firsthand. And it's been a great, as I mentioned, a great blessing in my life. And I know so many others uh, as well. So uh, we're thankful for you, <laughs> you having this burden and sharing it with, with the rest of us. Uh, one other thing you write in the book, and I've already talked about, that uh, is, is quite an interesting idea. And it's, the, of course, the title of the book, Finishers. But on page 28, you write, there is significant reason to believe that this generation, your generation, the teens, college students, and young adults of today could be the ones who run the baton across the line, who, who finish the task. Yes. And I'd like to have you say a little more on why you think that is, why this generation with so many generations before us Yes. And possibly so many generations after us. Why is it this generation you think might have that privilege if they're faithful? Love to. There's two or three reasons I'd say, but one is the growth of the church. Uh, we had our time now, of course, the church had its beginning in Jerusalem, the Middle East, went up into Europe, throughout Rome, the Roman Empire, uh, Scandinavia, all the rest. It leapt across the oceans to the Americas. It has come fully around the world now. We are seeing some of the most significant growth in the church in the global South, mm -hmm. in Latin America, Africa. I've had the privilege and crew of traveling to at least a dozen different countries in the world. I've been face to face with staff, of brothers and sisters in India, uh, Singapore, Africa. I haven't been in South America, but Albania, Albania. Yes, Albania, Russia. I met some of the. Albanian nationals who lead the Albanian church yes who came to faith just after the fall of communism when you visited and shared the gospel with them okay yes in the 90s right early 90s yep, yep. so the most communist repressive regime took off as the most most growth of any eastern european country mm -hmm. and they've sent uh, i know just in crew and it to count all the other mission agencies there's well over 100 maybe 120 crew staff now that are national audience, which just started in 92, 93. Mm -hmm. It is amazing, yeah. So one is the growth of the church. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the reality that, for example, in China, that the church leaders in China are talking about uh, back to the Back to Jerusalem movement. Mm -hmm. Their vision is for tens of thousands of Chinese nationals to be raised up and sent uh, from China to go to the people groups in the 1040 window, as they call it, Back to Jerusalem. What is that? What's the 1040 window? 1040 window would be latitude of uh, that area across the Middle East through Southeast Asia, uh, across North Africa, the Middle East, which is the least, the final least reached uh, nations of the earth. Uh, so again, it would be North Africa, be Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu populations primarily mm -hmm. across that area. So our Chinese brethren have the vision to send tens of thousands. They believe God has done what he has done in their country for such a time as this, to mm. quote Esther, mm -hmm. in finishing the mission. So they're calling it back to Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem. It swung around the globe. And they want to be ones who help bring it back to Jerusalem. Right. Via the old Silk Road. Yes. Via the old Silk Road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That in India, I've met with our Indian staff who have the passion to get their gospel to all the peoples. So many unreached people groups yet in India. Mm. But they're taking the Jesus film and, and so many other ministries, not just crew, just dozens and dozens of church growth planning ministries. Mm -hmm. So one is the growth of the church. 
Second, though, of course, Stanley, you know this, technology. Sure. Uh, here we sit in a generation that has a technology that no generation has ever had in terms of what we're able to communicate with people around the world through video. We can Zoom, we can send videos. Now through satellite, there are satellite TV ministries, radio ministries that are beaming the gospel into more closed, difficult countries and are receiving incredible responses of people open to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so technology is incredible. I know Jesus Film is on, the, they are well over 1,800 languages now that the Jesus Film is in the heart language of 1,800 different people groups. Mm. Uh, and their goal is to get it well over 2,000. Wycliffe Bible translators by 2025 mm-hmm. has in the works to get a New Testament begun or finished in almost every people group on the planet. Mm. So technology, and then all the ministries that exist that God has raised up in this generation more than ever in human history, like your own, and so many others in unique ways, mobilizing professors to be on campuses, so many ministries that we've never had before. Now, I want to be clear, there still remain a lot of unreached people. Mm-hmm. So even though I say, I believe we could finish it in this generation, there's still well over, I don't know what the numbers would be, uh, probably well over a billion people who haven't heard. But in terms of the number of people groups, I know when you were there at Miami, Stan, we talked about 17,000 people groups. Mm-hmm. Some are saying the number of people groups yet unreached is, is now in only the hundreds, maybe 600 or less. Depends how you break it down. That's phenomenal. So that's why I believe we are the potentially this generation. And that's why I want to say to college students, you could use the gifts God's given you to be a part of that. And it could be used in linguistics and computer skills, technology, uh, speaking, teaching, Mm-hmm. all manner of way you could use your gifts to be a part of be the ones who finish the mission now of course you know stan i always talk a lot about the return of christ mm-hmm. uh, eschatology is one of the things that's always excited me and no matter what a person's eschatological views are define for our listeners eschatology eschatology stan would be the study of the end times and what does the scripture say about the return of christ it's all the phrase that's often used them is the kingdom is already here and not yet Mm-hmm. that the kingdom was inaugurated in Christ's first coming, but there will be a consummation of the kingdom when he comes and reigns as king on earth. Mm-hmm. And the longing of our souls is finally fulfilled for peace, righteousness, and justice all around the world because Christ will be king. Matthew 24, Jesus says, and this gospel will be preached in all the earth and then the end shall come. So one of the driving motivations for us as believers is to be in the generation that sees uh, the kingdom, which is already here not, and not yet come to fruition with the return of the king. Always that's been for me. That was one of the core truths I was taught in in college that motivated me, mm. that I could see the day that the king returns. Mm. And I want to be a part of the mission that that hastens the return of the king. Mm-hmm. So I just think this generation, because of those reasons I mentioned, and another reason I didn't mention even was finances. We have the financial resources available in the church, just even in America alone, to finish the mission. If Christians will rise up and say, I will choose a lifestyle that enables me to give the most amount of money possible to finish the mission. And I have a whole chapter of that in my book. Right, right. Living a more modest lifestyle. I don't mean be a pauper. I don't mean driving an old car that barely 
functions, <laughs> but it may mean instead of a Porsche or a Lexus, it may mean a Honda, you know? Sure. And it frees up money uh, for the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. A mortgage payment that is less, so I have more money every month to give to support missionaries and workers all around the world. So that's what I'm talking about. Got it. So I understand students have played and can play a vital role in fulfilling the Great Commission after college, but what role is there for students while they're still in college? Yes, great. A couple things. One, I would say in college is the opportunity for them to be prepared and developed for their meaningful role they can play post-college. Okay. Which is why I commend to every student, when you get to campus, you know, one of the most important things freshmen do their first year on campus is decide who their friends are going to be. Mm-hmm. They choose a community to be involved in. So I urge students as you go to campus to immediately check out what are the Christian ministries there. And most every campus has several. Mm-hmm. Check them out and pick one and invest in it uh, invested in it so you can give and serve, but also so you can be built into. It. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I'd say to any student is, man, pick one, um, because your who your friends are is going to have a huge impact on what kind of man or woman you become. And we like to think, oh no, you know, I, I'm my own man. Right. No, you're influenced by the environment you put yourself in. Absolutely. By the people you hang with. So so pick a ministry uh, where you're going to be developed. And then secondly, as you are developed and built into, you can then in turn invest your life in others through evangelism, through discipleship, through Bible study, through teaching. You can invest in others and help mobilize them to be a part of the ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, in our ministry and crew, we, we use the language of wind, build, send. Other ministries say it in different ways. But it's the idea, I want to be, help, I want to be involved in winning people to Christ, building them up, discipling them, and sending them out to win others. Uh, one of the distinctives in our ministry, Navigators is very good at this, is the component of training and equipping, practical equipping for personal ministry. Now, I want to refer to something JP taught us way back. Stan, you remember this. We had JP Moreland come to campus mm-hmm. and spend some time with our students and staff. And I never forget this. I share it all the time. JP talked about three components of development in a student's life. He said, devotional piety, Mm -hmm. intellectual stimulation, Mm -hmm. and ministry activism. Shared that with all of our students, and I loved it. And so what I would say to any student listening to this, any parent to want to encourage your son or daughter, as you get to campus, check out the different ministries. Each ministry is unique, has different emphasis, different strengths. But all three of those are important. Obviously, you could only focus on devotional piety. You know, how am I doing with Jesus? Am I walking in the spirit? Am I connecting with the Lord? Mm-hmm. And you could totally ne- neglect intellectual stimulation, developing your mind, mm-hmm. learning to think, as you often say, Christianly, mm-hmm. uh, renewing my mind with apologetics, philosophy. You could also go the other way. You could only do that and not develop your walk with Jesus. You could develop your mind, but not Possibly, I don't know if you can always break them up, but you could focus so much on only your mind, you don't develop your walk. Sure. Or some would some would only focus on devotional piety and not ministry activism. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also possible you could get thoroughly involved in ministry activism and you don't develop your walk or you don't develop your mind. So what I want to encourage students with as you hit campus is pick a group you're going to be a part of, 
the one that you sense, I think this is the best place for me to be developed in and to contribute in, but especially pay attention to those three areas. Mm-hmm. Are you developing in devotional piety, intellectual stimulation, and ministry activism? Because if you do, you'll be prepared for when you graduate to enter meaningfully into the marketplace, medicine, education, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. By the way, he did uh, end up putting those three things into a book called okay. Kingdom Triangle. And I'll link to that in the show notes for those listeners who are interested. Oh, love to see that. And I'll also mention that in upcoming episodes in the near future, I'll be interviewing leaders of all of the major campus ministries and just asking them what it is that uh, their ministry offers students and why students should consider getting involved in, uh, yeah. in whether it's crew or intervarsity or navigators or, or others. Sure. Uh, so that students will have, and, and, and their parents and others will have a chance to hear from leadership of all those ministries, what they, what they offer. Fantastic. That's excellent. Great. And every ministry has their distinctives and God uses them in people's lives. And you know, that, that is fantastic. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Help me understand how several variations on a theme in your book fit together. Okay. At some points, it seems your thesis is that every everyone should go to the mission field. So for instance, on page 28, you write, will you fully embrace the call to be ambassadors for Christ? to be his sent ones, released to make disciples of all nations? Will you make the necessary sacrifices and choices? Will you live with your eyes and heart focused on Jesus and on his eternal purposes? Okay. Mm -hmm. Then a little bit later uh, on page 140, you seem to suggest that while not everyone should go, those who do go play the primary role in God's redemptive work and others stay behind to play supportive roles. Uh, For instance, uh, you write, please hear us. We are not saying that everyone who reads this book should go to minister the gospel to an unreached people group. Mm -hmm. Finishers also need to mobilize, train, fund, pray for, and send those who go. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, at still other places, you discuss, as you've mentioned in this conversation a few times, the importance of the biblical doctrine of calling to all vocations, Mm -hmm. right? To have a redemptive influence in every sphere of every country not just the mission frontier. Yes. And, and actually all of chapter nine in your book is devoted to this theme and it's a great chapter. And let me quote from that, a really nice passage on page 154. He write, 
I don't believe scripture teaches that there are sacred callings and secular ones, mm. that positions of vocational ministry, priest, minister, pastor, etc., are higher or holier than secular vocations, such as carpentry or accounting. Yes. It's easy for the subtle message to creep in. Those who go into vocational ministry are more elite spiritually than those who don't. Mm. That is flatly wrong. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, all occupations are sacred. All work has both intrinsic and instrumental value. So help me put those three themes or variations on the theme together. How, how, do, how do you fit those together? <laughs> Good, Stan. And maybe there's, maybe there, there's a little contradiction in what I said, how I said those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, my, the most charitable read is, you demand and you can put this all together for me. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Oh, that's great. Yes. As I speak on calling and God's will around the country with students, one of the things I make clear is that I am persuaded that calling is far less sitting around waiting for where the Holy Spirit zaps me and says, go here, go to Africa, do this, whatever. Um, That it's far less about that. Although who am I to say that God cannot speak to someone in that way? Sure. Paul's Damascus Road experience. Yes, exactly. In fact, a young man, a former disciple, well, you know. Oh, yeah. John would say he felt that his sense of calling to China, clear as could be, the Lord just made it clear to him. Now, he also went on a mission trip there to experience it in a summer. But anyway, my point is, I think calling is less about waiting for God to zap me, though he can, so to speak, speak to me like that. And it's much more about uh, using my mind to evaluate who has God made me, what are my gifts, what are my strengths, passions. Uh, I, I like to use the grid, uh, the circle of a sweet spot. I think I have it in the book, <laughs> mm-hmm. in, the, in the, God's, the God's World chapter, the sweet spot, where I say, what are my gifts and strengths? Uh, what are the needs in the world? And what are my passions? And where do all three of those go together? Mm-hmm. And that is my sweet spot. Now, that takes time to discover. I'm not sure that right out of college, I'm convinced of this, most people right out of college can't say, I know my sweet spot. I'm clear on my calling. There's some who might say, I, I'm very clear it's, it's, it's medicine, or it is to be an education professor. Mm-hmm. But many don't know. And I always encourage students, look, even though you don't know 100%, begin somewhere. Um, the book, Just Do Something. He makes the point that we can have a tendency in this, this generation, a tendency to procrastinate. We are waiting, waiting, waiting for God to tell me. And he says, quit procrastinating, start, get going, and, and believe God will reveal to you your niche and calling over time, which is what I advocate. Over time, I use the mind God's given me, and I say, who am I? Gifts, strengths, passions. Where are the needs in the world? And letting the scripture, of course, as I'm in the word, letting the scripture inform my mind to how I think about this. Mm-hmm. And then wise counsel with other believers to say, hey, how do you see the best way I can contribute? Now, to your specific question, in doing that, I want to help a student think through, okay, if God's heart is for the whole world, every people group, but there are so many ways I can do that. How do I best fit into the calling to reach the whole world? Of course, for, for some who have a gift of giving, spiritual gift of generosity, 
Well, very likely God may call them into the marketplace, make them very prosperous financially, because one of their best ways of expressing their calling is through their financial giving. Mm -hmm. I guess what I want to be saying in the book is, if the world is our context, then, for example, if, if I have a gift of giving, for example, how is it? Randy Alcorn says it. God prospers us not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. Mm-hmm. So if the world is the context for my life, as God prospers me financially, it's, Lord, how can I give more to finish the mission? So in that sense, I would want everybody to sign a pledge saying, I'm committed to helping finish the mission. Uh, but with a view toward my way of doing it, maybe through my finances primarily, or mobilizing others here in the U.S., mobilizing professors, you name it. But for all to say, well, I'm not a missionary, so I don't get involved in missions. No, we all have a calling to, to have a missionary spirit in the sense of, I embrace the mission. Now, how's my best way to live it out in light of strengths and passions? Oh, that's great. By the way, one of the books that helped me a lot as I was thinking about this idea of, the, of, of, of calling was Oz Guinness's little book simply entitled The Call. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, yes. uh, it's written, I think, 31, page, 31 chapters of two pages each to be read devotionally throughout a month. Okay. And that uh, really does a good job of unpacking some of these, these themes also. Let me try to summarize what I hear you saying and how these variations on the theme might go together. There's a word you use in that last uh, section in chapter nine, where you talk about all work has both intrinsic and instrumental value. Mm. And the key word seems to be and. Yes. So if I hear you right, and you tell me if this is what you're saying, there are two extremes, maybe, yes. that believers could end up on. One would be to see work as it's only instrumental. Yes. Uh, I go in the marketplace as a, a, as a means to another end. Mm-hmm. So my work has instrumental value, but doesn't have intrinsic value. It's just that it, it helps me give more. Or I just go into the marketplace because it's, yeah, it's got intrinsic value, but I don't, I don't see it as also a way to proclaim the gospel around the world through my giving. But you talk about the and, that all work has both intrinsic and instrumental value so that I should, I should avoid both those errors of just seeing it as instrumental and just seeing it as, as intrinsic. Is that, is that a good way to bring all these different themes together? Yes, I, I would say so. Because what I'm attempting to say there is because God is at work, because God created culture, there is intrinsic value in work mm-hmm. because I am a worker. <laughs> I'm created the image of God to be a worker. So I am called to make meaningful contributions in the society the culture that I live in, mm-hmm. whether that's through education, through service, uh, you name it, there's intrinsic value to my work as well as extrinsic or instrumental, I think is the word I use. I would never say to somebody, the only reason you're working uh, in the marketplace in whatever it is, is so you can influence other people for Christ. Right. Now, I would want a person to view it as, Lord, how do you want to use me in the lives of my coworkers? But that's not the only reason I'm doing this job. Okay. I am doing this job because there is intrinsic value in the service I am providing. If I'm a doctor, if I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, car mechanic, <laughs> you know, I'm glad that people have a gift to fix my car because that's a great value to what they're doing. 
if that makes sense. Oh, it makes so much sense. I ran into this in, in my work with faculty. I at one point served with a ministry to professors that really only saw their work as instrumental. And the uh, message was, well, you do this research and write and teach so that you can have a platform and uh, therefore share the gospel and be heard, which, uh, which is certainly true. There is that deep instrumental value in the uh, professor's opportunity as a Christian, but yes. it was really downplaying the value of their research and their teaching as an end in itself. And yes. uh, that I think is a message that the North American church especially struggles with. And, uh, and it's very, very detrimental, but one can go too far the other way, as you point out, sure. and not, not understand that these, uh, these roles that we all have, have instrumental value as well. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, what do you see as the greatest challenges that students face to actually embracing a life committed to taking the gospel to the nations and fulfilling mm -hmm. their calling in, in, uh, in whatever way that might be? Yeah, that's great. Great question, Stan. Well, I, I think one of them is the entitlement issue, especially for this generation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm working, still working with students directly at Butler University. Mm -hmm. uh, be going to meet one after we're done talking here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and I think for some, it's entitlement. It's that they, um, they feel they deserve to make a certain amount of money to get a certain job. Mm -hmm. There is a pressure maybe depends on their family background. There is a pressure to pursue a career that dad will be pleased with. I think there's a desire for comfort and convenience. And so there's a fear that if I am willing to say, Lord, whatever you call me to do, I'm willing. Mm -hmm. He might invite me into something that I'm not going to have to comfort the convenience the amount of money I want. Okay. Yeah. He might call me to go overseas and live in a culture that is less comfortable than uh, where I could be here in the States. And so that's why I speak to that issue as much as any entitlement. And, and that is rooted in, have I embraced at, at a deep heart level, at a gut level, what Jesus did for me mm. in his suffering on the cross? Do I embrace not just, oh, everybody says rather flippantly, Jesus died for my sins. Do I understand at an emotional level, heart level, what it meant that Jesus suffered on that cross for me, laid aside all of his rights for me. Why wouldn't I, out of a gratitude, obedient response, say, oh, Jesus, I'll go anywhere. So one is entitlement, but secondly, with and directly related to that is, and I think this is a big issue, do I believe God is good? Because of students are more aware of evil and suffering than ever before, social media and the news makes it possible. I do think there's a wrestling with, is God good? If I really am willing to do whatever he'd have me do, can I trust him? Mm -hmm. uh, will I have to suffer in a way I don't want to suffer? Mm -hmm. So the goodness of God, which is why so many good books have addressed that, and William Lane Craig, others, uh, I think that is a significant issue. Mm -hmm. I do think this generation of student millennials, now we're at Gen Z, um, they want to keep their options open. Uh, they're more hesitant to make a decision and move forward. I do think, I think there's a greater anxiety than ever that, that prevents students from taking a step of faith and just getting going, starting something. Control is an issue. 
I hear this from students. I want to be in control. And so you're asking me to take a step and start moving. I don't feel like I'm in control enough. Hmm. I want to have everything planned out and figured out. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to rest. In fact, that God is in control. I'm going to step out in faith. He's good. And he's also in control. I don't have to be in control. I think that's an issue for students, that that fear. Hmm. Now, the other issues are, I think the present thing we're in the middle of with social justice is going to present a challenge in this generation. I think there's a confusion these years about the gospel, about uh, what role the gospel plays in justice, and is doing justice equivalent to sharing the gospel. There's confusion about that. And some students will feel like, well, I don't need to be involved in evangelism if I just do something related to justice. And you're seeing that you're seeing that more and more on campus. Yeah, I think we are, because that's where our culture is. Students are feeling like, well, and frankly, it's more uh, it's it's more palatable to be involved in a justice cause on campus than to share the gospel, which can give offense and it doesn't make you as, uh, what's the word? You're not as tolerant. You know, we don't appear to be as tolerant. If I share the gospel that Jesus could be the only way, not could be, is the only way. Mm-hmm. So if I do a just cause, I feel good about that. And there's not as much risk involved in being involved in engaging with my non-believing friends over the gospel. And I'm not trying to separate the two. I'm not saying the gospel doesn't lead to meaningful involvement in justice issues. I'm speaking to the concern of if the justice issue then becomes the thing that takes place of proclaiming the gospel, I think it's going to be difficult. That was, uh, you're familiar with the student volunteer movement stand. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons Todd Aarons in his book, In This Generation, one of the reasons he said the student volunteer movement declined was that in the early 1920s with the advent of more neo-Orthodox theology from out of Germany and also People read books by different authors about justice, and the whole generation was influenced by the writing of a couple specific people. Um, and justice became more of the issue than the evangelization of the world in this generation, which was their watchword mm-hmm. with the student volunteer movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that will happen, but it could. And that's why I think we need to be aware of. So the key distinction I think you're making, at least one of them, correct me if I'm wrong, the gospel entails or leads to justice. Well, that's one of the implications of the gospel, but it's not identical to or synonymous with the gospel. Is that what you're saying? I think that would be a good way to say it. Yes. Okay. It's easy to confuse the two. And it's easy to start to think maybe the gospel is nothing but seeking justice. Yes. Uh, This book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth by Thaddeus Williams, perhaps one of the best written today on the topic. I've been engaging in about a a half a dozen books this summer on understanding social, the social gospel as the world defines it compared to the biblical gospel. And he's, and he makes the point that evil is inherent in the heart, but it is expressed through the structures in society. Mm. But when we think of evil as only being, uh, is in the structures then, of course, the solution is to change the structures. That's where the difference is. That's a good distinction. And if I only go toward how do I change the structures because that's where evil is, then I miss the whole point. You know, the gospel goes after the heart Mm. where evil originates. Uh, You know, we have examples in history. William Wilberforce, 
came to Christ in 1785 and spent 40 years in parliament uh, seeking to end the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he met Jesus who changed his heart. He saw the evil of it and he fought for it in the British parliament for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Amazing grace. Good movie. Good book. Great. It, It sure is. Let me ask you this. What other biblical themes are absolutely essential for students to understand during their college years? Well, I have a couple, but one would certainly be, <laughs> one would be grace. Okay. Uh, uh, under the theme of my position in Christ, my identity in Christ. So I'm not caught in the trap of performance. Mm. I'm not a duty-bound Christian. I am motivated out of the desire welling up in my soul because I understand I'm justified by faith. I stand in grace. I'm loved. I teach a lot on God loves you and he likes you, uh, that you're not. You're not just a forgiven sinner wandering around campus. Oh, woe is me. God loves me. I'm just a forgiven wretch of a sinner. No, I am a saint. I'm seated in the heavenly places. I'm righteous and holy. I'm in Christ. I'm an ambassador for the king. Well, that's a whole different perspective than walking around. I'm just a wretched sinner. Uh, Because every student knows they're going to still struggle with sin. Mm -hmm. And the only way you confront that is if I understand grace and who I am in Christ and the spiritual life and Yes, I'm going to fight the battle with sin, but, but no, my identity is not, I'm just a forgiven sinner. I am a righteous saint. Mm-hmm. So that's first, so that people are motivated to live out of grace. I still remember when uh, I was probably a sophomore, you and I sitting in my fraternity house and you on a napkin, I think, drawing out the position versus condition chart and explaining that to me, that my position in Christ was a, a, a beloved uh, saint, but my condition might not, well, it doesn't reflect that. And that was mind blowing <laughs> for me. So helpful. And it was so good to see that show up in the book. Really appreciate yes. that section yeah. of the book. Yeah. Well, that's great. <laughs> that's great, Stan. Wow. You remember that. That's, oh yeah. That does my heart good. That's 40 years ago. <laughs> hey, here's the second one I would say though, eternal perspective. Okay. We're talking about the truths that I teach you the most eternal perspective. I am living in light of eternity. You know, the eternal timeline, and I'm a little dot between two eternities. Mm -hmm. So how do I live out my dot? That changed my whole life, my whole perspective. What am I living for? Mm -hmm. Being excited. You know, 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of things students can fix their hope on. Mm -hmm. You know, their GPA, their resume, how much money they're going to make, how comfortable they're going to be. Boy, it's fixed my hope on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Christ. So mm-hmm. eternal perspective is the second one. A third one would be the spiritual life, uh, learning how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, so that I'm not trying to make things happen in my own flesh. A fourth one would be the centrality of the word, which is, you, you know, your great strength, bro. Renewing their minds with scripture, thinking Christianly, reading the books that are going to renew my mind with a worldview that is rooted in scripture, not what they hear by their professor. Uh, it depends who their professor is, but mm-hmm. those are vital, vital things. I think another one would be the lostness of man. If I'm not convinced that we are really lost in sin without a savior, mm. why would I share the gospel? Why would I care about the world hearing the gospel? So getting to that point of <clears throat> no universalism isn't true. We're not all going to heaven, even though Rob Bell might like to advocate that love wins and everybody's going to heaven, mm-hmm. uh, that people are really lost. And I think when people are captured by that truth, 
which is more difficult today. Because if I sit in the classroom and I got a Hindu friend here and a Muslim friend here who are nice and sincere and genuine, it's harder to believe that they're not really headed for heaven unless they have Jesus because they're nice people. That's how the girl who led me to faith lost her faith when she went off to college. Uh, is that right? Had a Hindu roommate and couldn't explain how uh, this friend was more devout than she was, but uh, yeah. wouldn't be uh, able to be saved. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hirsch, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we sure have. Anything else you want to make sure we touch on? Well, you know what? I'll throw this out. This one last thing. For students who listen to this, uh, parents, you can't make your sons or daughters do this, but for students, when you get to college uh, or if you're in college, whichever ministry you choose to be a part of, there are three things that have been my grid for what makes for great discipleship, okay? Hmm. So as you're in college and you are, I'm going to urge you to become part of a Christian group and be discipled by someone in that group, another student, staff member, whoever local church leader, the three big things that had been uh, my grid for what makes for great discipleship, and I use these to evaluate to this day yet, are these. Relationship, build a relationship with that person I'm discipling, get into the scriptures, get into the word, so that my mind is renewed with not just good ideas, even that are good ideas in a particular ministry, but all the ideas come from the word. And then thirdly, ministry together, ministry activism. So that whatever ministry I'm involved in, I'm saying to the leader, hey, let's do, let's get out there. Let's go talk to people. Whether it's by using a book table of the student union to get kids to come over and engage with us, whether it's going into a dorm, fraternity, whatever it is, doing the ministry together, relationship, word, and ministry. And when I have engaged, when I'm engaging all three of those with the disciple, I believe that produces the best discipleship. I want the guy to know I love him. Uh, he's not just a project for me. I care about him as a whole person. So I build a relationship. I have him over at dinner. We watch sports together. We play volleyball together, Stan. Mm-hmm. Racquetball, whatever. Maybe a little risk now and then. <laughs> and we play some risk together. <laughs> like our three in the morning risk games we had at my Way too often. Yeah, way too often. Maybe not. <laughs> we had good times we did but yeah whatever relationship you get into the word and of course you get into the word anytime you're part of a campus ministry if you go to the retreat you come to the meeting you go to bible studies your quiet times you're reading good books you're getting the word into your life in all kinds of ways but a disciple who really keeps taking you to the word is key and in doing ministry together and so the, the reality is it's easy uh, just like the other things we mentioned devotional piety intellectual stimulation ministry activism it's easy to have a relationship and look at the Bible. And often the ministry part is the diff- most difficult. So we don't, we're not involved. Sure. And yet when it's, I'm out there in the ministry, when I'm face to face with the non-believers, uh, a friend in the fraternity or whoever, a guy from my class, that's where my, my growth takes off mm-hmm. because I'm involved in letting God use me. And I watch the Lord show up through me and it produces a tremendous passion for the lost and a passion to say, man, I want to be a part of what God's doing all around the world because I learned it in college. Mm-hmm. So the big three, relationship, word, ministry. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so helpful. Yeah. Well, we've, we've just touched the tip of the iceberg of all of these themes, all so important. So uh, where can listeners go to learn more? What are some other resources you might suggest besides those you've mentioned along the way? 
Well, I, I can mention I have a website. Uh, it's uh, profoundly named RogerHershey.com. Easy to remember. I have about 40, 40 talks on there. Most of them audio, uh, one series called Life Options Series, which is video, which is messages for the student who's a junior, senior, really thinking about how do I live out my calling? That might be helpful. Okay. Yeah, that, uh, there's numerous websites, of course, mission websites, which the Joshua Project, of course, hmm. is one. They can Google the Joshua Project and all kinds of resources uh, to learn more about what God's doing around the world. Great. Yeah. There is a, I'll give you a little app. There is a simple app called uh, Unreached of the Day. And my wife and I really like it. You free download Unreached of the Day. It gives you a different people group each day to pray for. Great. Uh, and it's, it's shorter than Operation World because it's a, just a page and a half on an app on your phone. You can pray and do it in five minutes. Nice. So you can literally pray for a different people group around the world each day. Nice. Well, and you mentioned Operation World. That's another great resource. Yes. That's a little bit of a, of a bigger book. It's got maybe two, three, four pages on each nation and the people groups in those nations and the state of the church there, yes. the prayer needs, and so on and so forth. So uh, another good resource to mention. For sure. Absolutely. Well, Hirsch, this has been great. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for your ministry now for 50 years and just the way that you've been faithful to God's call as you've shared about how you encourage students to do the same. You're just a great model in that. Well, Sam, thank you for having me. And let me say one last thing to all your viewers. Keep listening to this podcast by Stan. <laughs> he and J.P. Moreland are two of the men I respect most around the country because of their commitment to engaging the mind and uh, wrestling with the issues of the hour and uh, educating this generation to think Christianly, to think with a biblical worldview. So keep listening to Stan, all of you who catch this podcast, because I love this man and I respect him. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Hey, bro. You betcha. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of this show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond. <laughs>